We're picking up where we left off in John chapter 1 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. Today, we're finally going to get to the part of this chapter, this book even, that begins the narrative, the story of Jesus' life and ministry. And in John's telling of the storyline of Jesus' life and ministry, he kicks off with the character of John the Baptist. And so today we're going to begin seeing a bit about this character. We're going to hear more about him in upcoming weeks, but I think it'll be helpful for us to acknowledge who this man is and what it is that he came to proclaim. So I'm going to read through John chapter 1, verses 19 through 28. That's where we're going to be this morning. You can follow, me, follow along with me. And then after, pray, after reading, I'm going to pray and then unpack a verse or two at a time. So again, starting in chapter 1 of John, verse 19. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you were neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Let's pray. Lord, as we walk through this passage this morning, I ask that you would help us to see these important things proclaimed by John, the questions that were proposed by the priests and Levites and why his answer is so important. Father, I pray that the same things that you were teaching to that crowd then, you will teach to us. So, Lord, help us to not just see this as mere history, but as something to apply to our lives this very day. And so, Lord, be with us as we spend time in this passage. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's go back to verse 19 and 20 together. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Now, as I've already said, we're going to see the character, the figure, John the Baptist, in his ministry and teaching. Now, John the Baptist has already been prefaced in this chapter. In fact, we saw him back in verses 6 through 8. He is the one mentioned there as the man who bore witness to the true light, but was not the light himself. But in these verses, we're going to see how it is that he bore witness. And that's why this begins by saying, this is the testimony of John. The very one that is a relative of Jesus, probably a cousin on Mary's side. He's the one who came into this world for a significant purpose, to bear testimony to Jesus Christ. And his ministry had attracted the attention of quite a crowd. In fact, so many people in the area around it started coming that it got the attention of even the elites in Jerusalem. And that's why this event plays out. Matthew chapter 3, verse 5 tells us just how widespread the knowledge of John had gotten to by this point. It said this, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. It's pretty significant. Even if we were to see that as hyperbole, a bit of exaggeration for the sake of emphasis. The point is that John was well known. In fact, by the time that we get to the book of Acts, years after this time, John and his ministry and its work will have spread so broadly that people in the other parts of the Mediterranean world will have heard about him and actually consider themselves disciples of this John. Even King Herod, The king at the time will have heard about this John and take action when he doesn't like what he says. And what was his message? Well, again, Matthew in his gospel summarizes the message by saying this, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the summary of John the Baptist's teaching and message. His message is one of repentance of sins. 
And so a delegation of priests and Levites were sent to find out what's going on with this guy out at the Jordan River. And that's why we see priests and Levites from Jerusalem arrive. Now, real quick, just to make sure we all have this in mind, in the Old Testament, the people of God, the Israelites, were brought out of Egypt and into the wilderness. And while they were there, God organized them into a nation. He gave them laws. He gave them judges. He gave them religious rites and ceremonies. He taught them how to live and exist as a civil entity. And they were even granted leadership to organize under. One set of leadership was the civil government. And that was, as we'll find out over the course of time in ancient Israelite history, was to be by rule of a king over the people, namely a king in the line of Judah. And so David, King David, is eventually, over time, commissioned to be the king, and he's told that there will be someone in his line, someone, a son of David, who will continue to rule. The rulership of the civil government was to be by a king, namely one in the line of Judah. But there was additionally supposed to be a spiritual set of leadership. Those were the Levites, the, the priest class from the sub-tribe of Aaron. And the Levites as a greater whole were those who were to be the leaders of the religious sphere. Now, by the time that we get to the days of John the Baptist, you might know that there is no king in Israel at this day. In fact, that's what they're waiting for, the coming king of Israel, the coming king in the line of Judah. But they don't have one at this time. Instead, the Romans actually have set up a bunch of different uh, 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 people who basically rule as governors and, and little K kind of kings over that particular area at the time. And so the Israelites didn't really have anyone from their nation that was ruling over them. So they didn't have civil leaders in that way. They only had the priests and Levites. So by John's day, the priests and the Levites were kind of the de facto kings and governors over these spiritual people, over the Israelites. They had a kind of authority, an air about them that was even greater than what we saw in the Old Testament. And so these priests and Levites, hearing about this character out by the Jordan River in the wilderness, baptizing people, they send these ambassadors to find out what's going on. It may even be significant to note that John the Baptist is a Levite. In fact, his father was a priest, Zechariah, and even on his mother's side, she was in the line of Levi. And so this priest character is out in the wilderness, baptizing people. They want to know what's going on. And so here they show up and ask him, who are you? What is his answer? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. You know, I, I think as I read this before, uh, John would make a terrible politician. He just cuts to the chase. He just says the answer in one quick thing. He doesn't wax on. He doesn't, well, let me tell you who I am not. Let me, he, just, he just, I'm not the Christ. In fact, it's interesting to note that at least the way that the apostle John retells this account, he doesn't even say that they asked him if he was the Christ. You see it? Who are you? But John the Baptist knows what's in their mind. He knows what they're thinking. He knows why it is they came out. And so as he sees them approach, he says, you know that guy you think I, I think I am? I'm not him. I'm not the Christ. Might be helpful for you to note, if they don't know this already, Christ is not merely Jesus' last name, Jesus Christ. Christ is a title. It means the anointed one. It's the same as the Messiah, that word in the Old Testament. Messiah and Christ both, Greek and Hebrew respectively, and the transliterations of those just means anointed one. The people were waiting not just for some individual who may kind of be called anointed, but a particular one, one in which all of the Jews and the rest of Jesus' interactions will ask, are you the Christ, the Messiah, the singular anointed one that we've been expecting to come? And here John is confronted. He makes it very clear right off the bat, I am not this Messiah. In fact, you might notice how uh, he even says it in three ways. It's a very redundant way to say it. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed. Even in Greek, it's weird. It's awkward because the, the author here is overemphasizing how unambiguous John was. I am not the Christ. Very definitive about that. 
And so what did they ask next? Verse 21 says, and they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he said, no. John says very little about himself until under interrogation. Go ahead and look at verse 21 there. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? Now, why would they ask him if he was Elijah? You may know the answer if you're familiar with this text or other parts of the Bible, but just to spin all of us up here on this. In the Old Testament, there was a prophet named Elijah, and he prophesied during the days of the wicked king Ahab, calling him to repent. In fact, this Elijah lived out in the wilderness for much of his ministry. In fact, it was said that he was clothed with camel skin, and he was kind of a wild wilderness type of man, which is what they would say about John the Baptist as well. But you might remember about his story in the Old Testament that Elijah never died. He never died. At the end of his ministry, God sent a fiery chariot to come down and whisk him away up into heaven. He didn't live out his days and die natural causes like anyone else might have. He was removed from this earth before the end of his days, so to speak. And so, this sets up a wrong view by the time we get to John the Baptist's day. Additionally, in the very last book of the Old Testament in Malachi, there is a prophecy about Elijah coming before the great and awesome day of the Lord. I'll read for you Malachi 4, 5. This is the prophecy Malachi says. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So this prophecy, plus the fact that he didn't die made it so that for some time at this point, the Jews had expected that since Elijah had not finished out his days on earth, God had in some sense suspended him in the heavens to wait until the day that he would literally return from heaven to continue his prophetic ministry before the great and awesome day of the Lord came. Make sense? So God had removed Elijah from off of the earth for a time, and he would send that same Elijah back down to the earth before this great and awesome day of the Lord. A kind of Jewish version of perhaps reincarnation if he was to empower somebody else. or even Soul transfers, what some of them had in mind at that time. Even the way that they ask the question implies that they probably have this wrong view in mind. Are you Elijah? They don't just ask, are you the one prophesied about as Elijah? They say, are you Elijah? And so he rightly answers, no, I'm not. John, John, Elijah, John, right? Because he's not Elijah. Now, he flatly denies their wrong view of this, but that ought not overwhelm the fact that Jesus himself makes it clear that this John the Baptist is in fact the one who was prophesied to come as Elijah. In Matthew eleven fourteen, Jesus even says, And if you are willing to accept it, he, John the Baptist, is Elijah who is to come. Couldn't be clearer. So that is who John is, but not in some mystical, kind of reincarnational way. I think that perhaps the simplest summary to what's going on there is actually stated in Luke. The gospel according to Luke, in Luke chapter 1, it says exactly about John the Baptist, this. And he, John the Baptist, will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. See the language there? Makes that even clearer. In the spirit and power of Elijah. Kind of cuts off that error at the pass. No, no, not about the physical Elijah. In the same spirit and power of Elijah. So John was saying, no, I'm not your wrong view of this when he answers. Some might question, well, why, why does he say it like this? Well, John was no more literally the person of Elijah than Jesus was literally a lamb of God. And yet both of those illustrations are used to refer back to their persons and even was prophesied about them in the old. John's coming was the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy just not the distorted interpretation of that prophecy that the Jews held. So he denies that view, but the interrogation continues. Now they ask, are you the prophet? And there's, a, there's, a, there's an important line there. He doesn't say, are you a prophet? He says, are you the prophet? And that's significant because this, again, points back to yet another Old Testament prophecy 
In the days of Moses, Moses foretold of a coming prophet that would be sent by God to whom the people should listen. I want to read for you what is said about this, uh, this prophet coming. Moses wrote this in Deuteronomy chapter 18, and it ought not be insignificant for us to realize he's writing this at the same time the people have come to the Jordan River and are getting ready to cross from wilderness into uh, the promised land. And as he arrives there, he says this about the, uh, another coming prophet who will come and who will eventually and ultimately bring the people out of the wilderness and into the promised land. This is what Moses says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. Now, what he's referencing there. Moses is talking about the time when the people stood before the mountain of God and heard God's voice and saw the fire on the mountain, and they were so terrified of it. This is when the Ten Commandments were first spoken to them. And they were so terrified by it that the people of God said, no, we cannot hear you anymore. If we hear you, if we look upon you, we will die. Please speak to a prophet, select a prophet. And he will tell us what you said, because we cannot bear it. And God says, you're darn right. That's how I'll work. I'll, walk, I'll, I'll work through another mediator. He's reminding them of that here, and he says this about the future of his day. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all I commanded him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name. I myself will require it of him. So you hearing that? Just as Moses stood between God and man back then, there will be another capital P prophet coming to stand between God and man yet again. And that is the one and only final mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in case there was any question... In Acts chapter 3, as Peter's preaching in the, in the temple grounds, he says this, he specifically tells the people, you know that prophet that Moses spoke about? Jesus is that prophet, and you killed him. So again, John denies that he's the prophet. He's not. He's not the prophet. So he says no. But they continue. Look at verse 22. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? They finally cut to the chase. Forget this. You told us who you aren't. Now tell us who you are. Just tell us, John. Stop keeping us in suspense. And he answers in verse 23. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Here, John answers with a verse. He references Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. I'll I'll just read that verse as it's written in the Old Testament. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Make straight. And this brings to, to mind the idea of a meandering road, maybe a path in the wild that kind of goes along canyons and ridges and uh, will go up and down and, and it may cross over fords, streams, maybe narrow bridges, uh, makes its way through the countryside before it arrives at a destination. That's the idea in mind. And what John is saying here is that he is the one that Isaiah prophesied that will cry out to the people, make straight, not crooked, not meandering, not up and down, straight the way of the Lord. To make straight this path means to provide the king with the straightest possible way to his throne. That he might come without delay and with all the honor of one who is eagerly received by his people. 
So we all know this is an illustration, but imagine what that illustration is. The king is coming? Yes, he's coming, he's coming. Oh, well, he can, he can wade through the same streams that me and my cattle wade through. He can step over the same fallen branches and trees that have fallen. He, he, he can follow that same course. What a, we'll see him when he gets here. No, the image is, of course, of, well, if he's coming, let's make it clear for him. Let's, let's fill in the ditches. Let's, let's, let's make it straight. Let's not make it go around that, 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 uh, that briar patch. Let's clear it out so he can just march straight in without delay and know that we have prepared for him. Come, king, come. Your people want you. And that's what he proclaims. Make straight the way of the Lord. But this wasn't good enough for the priests and Levites. Here's what they say next. Look at verses 24 and 25. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. Admitted, it doesn't say that they were necessarily Pharisees. They were some ambassadors, some delegation from them. The Pharisees would have been the, uh, the, the chief ruling, um, trustworthy Bible scholars. There were other classes as well. The Sadducees held a lot of control over the temple area and even the priesthood. But the Pharisees were known as the Bible guys. These were the scholars. These were the ones that if you were going to send someone to debate an apologist uh, from another faith, you'd send a Pharisee, the ones who are rigid rigidly uh, connected to the, the Word of God in the Old Testament. And so these Pharisees sent these guys out to go find out what's going on with this priest's son out in the wilderness. And what do they ask? They ask him, then why are you baptizing? If you're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. Now you probably know that baptism was not a commanded practice in the Old Testament. To be sure, there were ceremonial cleansings. The priest class would have to go through these cleansings uh, before they did all lots of their rites and rituals around the temple and the sacrifices. But not baptisms per se. Not what you experienced here earlier today where two believers got in, the waters of baptism submerged and brought up. But by the first century... It had already become a common practice amongst the Jewish people. Very interesting. It was not commanded in the Old Testament. You're not going to find passages for it. And yet, the people were doing it. It's quite interesting, actually, if you think about what's going on. Leon Morris is a Bible commentator. He writes about this passage and that idea of baptism already being around at this time. He says this, baptism was not a new practice in Judaism. It was the regular rite in the admission of converts from other religions. When such a conversion took place, the males of the family were circumcised and all or both sexes were baptized. Interesting. So what he's saying here is, you might remember the old covenant, when somebody became a covenant member, the men in the household would get circumcised as a sign of their part of that old covenant. But by the time that John the Baptist comes on the scene in history, the Jewish people are already acknowledging Gentiles or pagans when they come to faith, when they try to come to be joined in that covenant. Not only were they participating in the rite of circumcision, but the whole family would get baptized. Men and women alike. And they would do this as a way of kind of showing a rinsing off of their sins, a cleansing, a purifying. It was an acknowledgement of them saying, listen, I am unclean. My whole life has been an unclean life. And they were demonstrating that by getting in the waters of baptism. It was a way of kind of like when the, the priest did ceremonial washings, they were like, since the last time I was here, I went out into the filth of the world and came back. It's time to refresh in a similar way, a new convert becoming baptized will be saying, my whole life has been in the filth. Oh, I'm showing a display of that being washed away. Not only this, but it would have probably only been priests who were present at the baptism of new converts. Very likely that's the case. Jesus lays that charge at the Pharisees in Matthew 23. You make these converts twice sons of hell as yourselves, he says to them there. They're probably watching over this, taking part in this in some way. And not only that, but the baptism that took place in that period of time was done by the individual. So if you would come out of a pagan background, you'd baptize yourself. You'd, be like, you'd get in the water with other people there, you'd cleanse yourself. That'd be the idea of what would, what would take place. 
doesn't quite look like exactly what baptism is in the New Testament, but this is taking place here. And so they challenge him. They ask him, why are you baptizing? And some point out that the real scandal, perhaps, is that he's baptizing Jews. You get it? That's the problem. Listen, we get that you have to cleanse those pagan Gentiles. I mean, my goodness. But Jews, are you saying that the fact they were born into the family, of, family line of Abraham is insufficient? That they are not rightly the people of God already? That they are not already seen as clean in the eyes of God? That that may have been what's going on. Their status as literal sons and daughters of Israel was insufficient. Now, it is, of course, true. Of course, it's true that just because a person was born into the household in the Old Testament, that did not necessarily mean their heart was right before God. Of course. We have scores of families and individuals that we know of in the Old Testament who did, in fact, come through the line of Abraham and yet hated God. They were far more impure and far more unclean than even many other Gentiles who put their trust in God. But I actually don't think that that's the problem. I actually don't think that that's what's at play in this passage. And the reason I think that is because of their reasoning. They asked, then why are you baptizing if you're not the Christ, the prophet, or Elijah? In other words, well, if you were Christ, for sure you'd baptize Jews. Well, if you were Elijah or the prophet, well, obviously then it makes sense that you'd baptize the Jews. But on what authority are you baptizing your fellow brothers and sisters? This is probably because of their understanding that the Old Testament prophecies said that there would be some kind of baptism when the Messiah comes. Probably the most famous place we can point to is in Zechariah chapter 13. It talks about the coming day of the Lord. And in that particular prophecy, in pointing to this day, it says a whole bunch of things will happen at the coming of the Lord, at the day of that Messiah, at that final point. And it says this in Zechariah 13.1, On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David. David, Jews. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem, again Jews, to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. See that? And so perhaps some of these scholars were familiar with that text in Zechariah and were expecting, well, if somebody was making the case that they were the Christ or Elijah or the prophet, then that would fit why they would start baptizing because it looks like some level of cleansing and washing, a fountain of water will in some way be a part of that day. But the fact that he's doing this and saying he's neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet was confusing these guys. But John finally clears it up in verses 26 and 27. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And here we see John do what John does. He points again to Jesus. You're, you're coming to question me? Do you have any idea who's standing next to you? And you're wasting breath on, on what I am doing. This is just water. And you... Do you not know who's in your midst? Some commentators think that maybe Jesus was there on this particular day. That's very likely that he was there on that day. At the very least, he's already in the presence. He's in the midst of Israel. He's standing right there amongst the people, and they did not know him. They were not ready for him. They had not received him. I want you to note, disciples in the Old Testament day and into the New Testament day, just like this, in that period of time, would oftentimes have rabbis, there would be a disciple-rabbi, kind of a student or a pupil-teacher type of relationship. And the way that oftentimes rabbis would get paid for their services was by acts of service. So rather than by an exchange of money, the rabbi would be in charge of teaching, hey, rabbi, you teach me, uh, you teach me the Bible, you teach me the Old Testament, you teach me those things, and I'll fix your fence. 
Good. You teach me while I'm fixing your fence. You'll end up with a fixed fence, and I'll end up knowing more about the Old Testament. And that's the way it would go. And they would do a whole bunch of acts of service. In fact, they would oftentimes care for food. They'd cook for them. They would do a whole bunch of things that would typically be done by a servant. The disciple would be the servant of the one who was the rabbi. I want to read for you something that's a rabbinic saying that would have been active in this time about how a disciple, while he may do those things, there's at least a point at which he ought not cross. There's at least some way in which he wouldn't quite stoop to the level of a, let's say, slave. I'm going to read this for you. This is a rabbinic saying. It was, uh, it was codified in this exact language a couple hundred years after this, but the, 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 the meaning was true even back in John's day. It said this, Every service which a slave performs for his master shall a disciple do for his teacher except for the loosing of his sandal thong. In other words, it was expected that there was at least one task stated that was so lowly that if a disciple tried to do it, hey, stand up, whoa, that, that's slave work. Like, you can help in other ways, but don't, that's what the servants are for. But note what John is saying. John does not say, I am not worthy of this great man who's in your midst that you don't know. I can, I can merely untie his sandals. He says, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Guys, you're, you're challenging, you're asking and questioning me? I don't deserve to be his slave. That's the disparity that John points to. Jesus' worth cannot be overstated. It cannot be overstated. You know, one of the things about Mormonism that is so off-putting to Christians is this idea of making oneself worthy by works. This can be true in lots of different worldviews, but Mormonism especially hammers this in two wrong ways. Because not only does the, the, the uh, Mormon religion say that we can make ourselves more worthy by certain works and attain uh, things that our worth can then purchase. But additionally, Mormon heresy says that at one point in history, God was less worthy than he is now. And for believers, we not only see in Scripture, but feel in our own lives such a strong sense of unworthiness that this is especially distasteful to us. Oh my goodness, to think that our Creator God was ever less worthy, or that I could ever, by my own doing, make myself more worthy. Both of those things are anathema to us. Ugh! We are the unworthy ones. Not only will we, in and of ourselves, never be worthy to approach the glory of Christ, He has never been the least bit unworthy. Just like John, then, we are not worthy to stoop before him. We are not worthy even to be called his slave. This is why some people, I think, misunderstand the, the, the mercy of it. When, when the Bible tells us that we were once slaves to sin, and in belief, we get the transfer from being slaves to sin to slaves to Christ. Do you see the mercy there? We don't deserve to even be slaves to Christ. And yet we are freed from slavery to sin, and now we are his servants. Verse 28 wraps up this section, says, These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. There, there were a couple of cities by the name of Bethany, it seems, in that time. And this was the one that was uh, on the, the, um, uh, the kind of the incoming from the wilderness into the promised land. And next week we're going to pick up right here where this leaves off. But I want to wrap our time this morning with two points of application that I think are very simple to see here that we can apply. First, make much of Christ. Make much of Christ. You and I ought to be like John the Baptist here, pointing to Jesus in everything. Pointing to him in all that we do. Not just talk about us, not just think about us, not just be the one who is known for that, but to be the one who always points to and acknowledges and celebrates the person and work of Jesus. I want you to imagine for yourself just a moment that you're in your typical circle of non-believing friends, wherever that is, at work, maybe it's uh, at school, maybe it's, uh, uh, maybe it's in the neighborhood. 
people who are not believers that you might be surrounded. Maybe it's extended family. In those circles, if a person were to ask you, hey, tell me something more about yourself. Where do you like to vacation? How long have you lived here? Do you ever have any desire to move out of Utah? Whatever. How's the weather stuff? Ask about yourself. How quick are you to answer those questions? Now compare, what if a person in that same little circle were in front of others to ask you, hey, I heard you're a Christian. Tell me about this Christ you love. Which of those would you be more ready and prepared to answer? Which of those would you be more excited to talk about? And I say this because there's a simplicity in talking about the self, isn't it? I mean, I'm an expert on me. Anything I say about me, how, how could you really challenge it? My favorite color is blue. No, it's not. Yes, it really is. It's really up here, right? You, so you already have some authority. It's safe territory. Oh, I've lived here for nine years. Oh, we're on that side of town. Yeah, my, my favorite sports team is excellent. It's safe territory. But you and I both know that it's so common for us to, to someone just asked you a question. Hey, uh, what do you think about fill in the blank, something simple about yourself? But if you were called to give an account for Christ, how do we think? We should be like John the Baptist here. We ought to point to him in everything. Make much of him and not self. That he would be the hero of all of our stories. You know, out there as you walk in, you see the glorify God real big on the wall. We exist to glorify God, strengthen believers, and reach the lost. I have, in the past handful of months and even the last couple of years, I've tried to just you know, organize my thoughts around how we would explain to somebody what the differences of this church might be uh, over and above another church. Some of them are circumstantial. Our church is located in this part of town instead of that part of town. We have this number of members instead of that number of members. Uh, uh, the teaching pastor has this kind of personality and this bald head and tends to, to work through passages in this kind of way. And some of that's just circumstantial. It's just the way that it happens to be. And it's not necessarily a ton of meaning behind those things. It's just kind of the hand that we're dealt. But there are other things about our church that are significant. In other words, if you're wondering like, well, what's, this, is, this is different. I notice things different about this church than others. What is it? In introductions, I try to answer this question all the time. I try to get right down to it. Have you noticed? Is anything different? We're not trying to look different. I'm just acknowledging it might look different. It perhaps is because of something very significant. We really mean it when we say we exist before anything else to glorify God. We really, really mean that. Soli Deo Gloria. We really, really mean to the glory of God alone. We want to live in such a way, organize church in such a way, household in such a way, work in such a way, education in such a way, that in all things, he gets the greatest glory, not us. And we really mean that. And when we see things that don't quite align to that, we want to attack them because that's so significant for us. We must be eager to prop up, talk about, glorify, magnify the name of Jesus and not our own. John didn't talk much of himself. He came to be a witness to others. It's almost like you almost get in here, and, and I get that the retelling of these things are sometimes real quick summaries. So you don't get like the full uh, conversation he may or may not have had with these uh, priests and Levites, but at least the way that we get to read it. It's like he's bugged to talk about himself. Hey, I'm, I'm busy doing other more important stuff. So I don't care to talk about me. No, I'm not the Christ. Get out of here. No, not Elijah. No, not the prophet. Can you please? I'm trying to baptize. He seems almost annoyed with how curt his answers are in some of these things. You know, you and I, like that, ought to bear witness about Christ. It should be the thing that we talk about the most, the one whom we point people to the most. It's even one of those reasons that I think that it's possible that Christians can overemphasize our personal testimonies in sharing the gospel. This isn't the greatest of errors. It's wonderful to know your testimony and share it with people. But I have known in many Christian circles that some have said that there is no more powerful thing you can proclaim than that your testimony. False. Absolutely false. No. You don't need to say one word about yourself to proclaim the glories of Jesus Christ. You don't need to talk about you at all. In fact, some of you probably shouldn't talk about you at all in many of those moments. Right? Some of this is just proclamation. It doesn't matter... Jesus is whom you must put your faith in. 
It is wonderful to know your testimony, to be grateful for that. But even if your testimony is filled too much with you and not what he has done in spite of your faults, then even the proclamation of the gospel can sound more like a self-help seminar and how you can improve yourself. The fact that these men had to come and ask John for his credentials at all should show just how much his ministry was not about him. It's about Christ. No pamphlets and tracts out there to tell everybody a little profile of, of this John the Baptist character that you're probably going to meet in a few minutes here. Billboards tell you about, no, who is this guy? He only wants to talk about who he's here to point to. Recently, I took my older kids to the orthodontist, and uh, we had to kind of walk through the whole building to the, to the first-timers tour. It's the first time we've been in that building and to that practice, and um, as the receptionist was kind of walking us through, she says, oh, here's the iPads. So when you come in early, you can sit there, and the kids have something to do until they kind of get to go back in the back. And, uh, oh, over there's the, uh, the bathrooms if you need that. Here's the warm cookies and the, the water bottles we've got. You can have those as soon as you walk in. And one stop on the tour was the, uh, the wall of credentials for the orthodontist. And there was a whole bunch of them we had on the wall. And she goes, and this is our orthodontist. And she stopped and smiled and just waited. And I looked at it and thought, no, no, listen, there, there are especially some jobs that you probably want to know. The person knows what he's doing a little bit. But I think in many cases, you and I, even in our own lives, have the I love me wall somewhere. Maybe we wear it wherever we go. Maybe it's just conversation touch pieces we can't wait to bring up to impress somebody about some experiences that we've had or know about. or um, Well, when I got my seventh doctorate, I was really good. Oh, did I? I'm sorry. Did I explain that? You know what I mean? We ought to be so desirous to talk about Christ that at the end of a conversation with some person on the bus, they look to us after half an hour and go, oh, by the way, what's your name? You didn't even, you didn't even tell me that. You're just telling me about this Jesus guy you love. How wonderful for us to be known about that. Matthew Henry said this, Those speak best for Christ that say least of themselves, whose own works praise them, not their own lips. It's a great encouragement. This is one of those reasons that you you may have even noticed before, a preacher who talks a lot about self and is constantly the hero of all the stories, it feels feels off-putting for more reasons than just pride. It feels off-putting because the proclamation of the gospel should by itself be so Christ-centered. And it feels disproportionate if he does otherwise. We must preach not ourselves, but Christ. Not preach to make much of man, but of our Savior. Second and last point here, John said that he was a voice. He said, make straight the way of the Lord. Of course you know, that's an illustration. He's not not commissioning a construction project. Get the shovels and help build a road from here to Jerusalem. We all know that's not what he was saying, right? So the question is, what did he intend from his audience? What did he mean? In other words, if you were there and heard his proclamation, his his, uh, pre-prophesied, foretold, declaration, make straight the way of the Lord, what would you do? What's the action? I think the answer is in the summary of his teaching. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So because the kingdom of heaven is at hand, what what ought we do? Repent. That's what we do. Prepare your heart for Christ by repentance. If you're not a believer here today, you need to know this is significant. You cannot embrace Christ while your hands are full of other things. It's not as though you can hold on to all the idols, all the things that you think are more valuable and more important than Christ, and have them all kind of falling out of your arms, and someone says, hey, would you like Jesus? Oh, sure, um, put him on the table back there. See, repentance is an acknowledgement that all of these things are not what's going to give me life, but are killing me. I cannot be devoted to, have affection for, a love higher than that I should have forgotten anything in such a way that I should let it all go. Charles Spurgeon said, Surely no rebel can expect the king to pardon his treason while he remains in open revolt. Great line there. In order for you to even receive Jesus, you need to, you need to 
dump everything else. For the unbeliever here, you must repent. You must acknowledge your sins before God because he declares you unrighteous. He declares you unfit for heaven because of your sinfulness, because of your wickedness. And as I said earlier, you are a slave to sin. And if you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, you remain in your sins. You are not forgiven for those things. And if you were to die today before receiving him, you would go to hell forever, separation from God in eternal conscious torment. That's what the Bible teaches. But God sent his perfect son to take on the penalty you deserve for that sin. So that instead of you receiving that penalty, that death, that judgment, that that awful horror of suffering that you deserve, that can be placed upon Christ on the cross. That if you believe in him, you will then inherit the righteousness of God in Christ and no longer deserve the punishment that you earned. He will have taken it off of your shoulders. And how can you do that? By faith, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You must repent of your sins and turn in faith to Jesus Christ. It is your only hope. And just as Jesus raised from the dead three days later, you too can be raised to eternal life. And so turn from your sin. Acts 17.30 says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. If you have not repented of your sins, add to the pile of the things you've done to offend the true king that you have not repented of all of those offenses either and stand condemned. Brothers and sisters, for believers here, this is not the point where you just check it. Repent. Oh, check. I did that. I'll even tell you the story of when. No, 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 no. I'll repeat Martin Luther and said that All the Christian life must be one of repentance, repentance. That as believers, we are to repent of our sin. That means we are to recognize it every morning. We are to acknowledge it all over again. And we are to submit it before the Lord Jesus Christ and hate our sin. We are to be the repentant ones, humbly acknowledging the places that we fall short every day in our flesh. Do you want Christ to do a new work in your life? Are you praying that he would show up and make changes or heal relationships or work through issues that you're dealing with? Repent. You see, God's work in our sanctification is like seeds planted in a field. We hope to grow and flourish and bear fruit. That's what we want. We want out of our sanctification fruit. Well, then what ought we do? Repentance is like tilling the soil. It's gardening, it's providing for fruit, it's pruning off all of that which is not good and godly. You know, this is where godless psychology fails and falls short. You can receive lots of help from the world that seems really, it makes a lot of sense, but this is where, the, where godless views of self-help fall utterly flat. What you need in life is not minor adjustments to the right or to the left. To simply correct wrong thinking by by learning truer facts. No. You, You haven't just made some mistakes that need correcting or learning from. You need to search out your heart, expose it to the light of the gospel, and repent. Repent of sin. That's what you need to do. You have conflict in relationships, brothers and sisters? Repent. Find where you have sinned, where you have not operated perfectly Christ-like. And don't just go like, oh, I'm not perfect. I mean, no one is. Stop, stop. Repent of that. Hate that sin. Hate what you have brought to contribute in the issues in this situation. And with humility, lay those before the Lord and say, this is still sin and it's still in my life. Make war upon it. I wonder, not spend enough time in the word? Not enough time in prayer? I remember I committed back beginning of last year beginning of the year, I was going to read this much time in the Word. I was going to give you know, this much time to prayer. I kind of carved this out, and I kind of wavered on that a little bit over time. That, no, no big deal. No big deal. I'll just reset for next year. For the record, reset for next year. But repent! Because any deficit in your life of the attention that is due to God, all of it, is sin and must be repented of. We don't just go as believers. Well, I'm, I mean, I'm a pretty good person. We don't play that game anymore. Problems in your marriage or parenting? Repent. See where you have done wrong. 
Woe to the man or woman who forsakes the continual call to repentance, who is so caught up in how he or she has been the victim of everyone else's sin, they neglect to see how in need they are of repentance in their own life. I see this time and time again as we get together with husbands and wives and I try to help brothers and sisters work through marriage things. Oftentimes marriage is the closest relationship we're going to have under our relationship with the Lord. It's not uncommon that that would happen. But when one will not repent of something, you're not going to make much headway at all. You've got to see these things, and it's why we must gaze at the cross. It's why we must consider Christ's death for our sins. It's why every day we must wake up and preach the gospel all over again. And think about how great the irony is that these delegates of the Pharisees, these Levites, these priests, who needed such repentance, show up and come to the one who offered it so freely and they didn't even realize that they needed it. Here they are standing on the banks of the river watching as all these sheep go in and get baptized. They're like, yeah, they probably should repent. That's a good, I'll, I'll grant that, John. That's not too bad. Tell them to repent. Good. And yet the wickedness of their own hearts, they should have crawled in to the waters. It is a great and undeniable truth regarding repentance, denial of the self. You can either deny yourself or deny Christ. Indeed, you must do one. Self or Christ must go. Believers, brothers and sisters, every day, new every morning, we must set ourselves down, repent of our sins, and seek the face of God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that the teaching of John the Baptist would ring true today as it was back when he first spoke it. Thank you that you sent this great brother of the faith to come before us, to precede us, uh, one who was foretold and one whom Jesus even said is the greatest man born of woman. Let us follow even his uh, uh, example in the proclamation of the name of your holy son. Help us to make much of Christ and not ourselves. Help us to be quick to repent. Help us to see that anything we've been relying upon, apart from a heart that has repented and turned in faith to you, will not bear any fruit. Lord, we need this and ask for you to help us with it in Jesus' good name. Amen.